When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Seattle week, pretty amazing week. Uh, We had your, and now I know, your roomie, Alvin Davis, on. Uh, when I was up in Seattle, Mr. Mariner, uh, yeah. always one of the most gracious guys. When I was playing, you know, Alvin was retired and would always come around, and and the guys just had nothing but unbelievable things to say. Guys that were closer to Alvin, that had played with Alvin, that were teammates right. of mine at the time. I didn't know him. I've got to know him over the year. What a wonderful man, first and foremost. But uh, we got to talking about those early days. You guys, I think you broke into the big leagues at the same time, 1984, yes. Kingdom, different world there in Seattle. I got to the Kingdom in 92, and it was still a much different world than it is now. Um, this week, this past week that, that we both shared in, uh, in Seattle, from 84, Kingdom, video game for me offensively i'd walk into the kingdom it was like nothing i ever you know coming from the minor leagues it was a different animal you pitched there just tell the audience the differences between seattle in the early 80s versus 2023 now t-mobile park right it's a it's a different world it's definitely a different world than i remember in the 90s and had to be from the 80s when you started oh there's no doubt about it the kingdom there was a reason they had a dome, and there's a reason there's a retractable dome, even though I think T-Mobile is one of the most beautiful ballparks in all of baseball. But there's a retract. They have to have something that goes over it because it rains a lot up in Seattle. So they, they had to have that. So the King Dome was that multi-purpose uh, dome where they had the Seahawks play here, there, and the Mariners played there. Uh, you know, I came up through the minor league system. Yeah, in 84, Alvin and I both came up together. We and almost our entire double-A team emerged from we had a unreal double a team we all kind of came up uh together in the you know in harold reynolds and uh you know jim presley was there yvonne calderon was out there phil bradley we all came up together uh through the minor league system and and got in there in the early 80s um i didn't know any better i i knew what a hitter friendly place that was i mean hitter big time hitter friendly but for me as a pitcher I, I was so comfortable in that building from the standpoint of it felt like because of where the backstop was situated and there was about 12 feet up before the stands hit, it felt like the hitter was literally right. I was right on top of the hitter. I felt like I could throw it by anybody on that mound. It just gave you the illusion that you were throwing harder than you probably were. Uh, so it, it didn't bother me that it was, you know, I've seen, I believe me, I've seen broken bats leave that ballpark, you know, and guys get jammed all of a sudden the ball's going out. I saw plenty of those there, uh, but it was, uh, it, it was difficult. You know, when it was raining and cold outside, you were happy to be in there. 
and then driving across the I-90 bridge when it was just a glorious day and the water shining, people are on their boats having a great time, and you had to go into that big warehouse. That was horrible. You hated every second of it, and you would just dream that they would someday put a you know a beautiful ballpark that uh, could maybe accommodate both, and they've done it with T-Mobile. It truly is one of the most beautiful ballparks that you could ever go to spectacular setting the way it's where it's set up and they do have the ability to roll the roof over when the weather gets crummy and it's amazing it, everything's so different now you know i when, when i was up there for the all i had to i went over and had an appearance at the uh, the draft okay. little different a little different than our drafts you know and i'm sitting <laughs> exactly. there they got they had lumen field which is where the seahawks play they had that kind of uh they made us they made a stage and, and fans were sitting in the seats for the draft and the kids are coming out and I'm thinking, wow, this isn't like my 1990 draft where I basically, I felt like I got a telegram to tell me exactly. where I was to where exactly. I was drafted. Uh, you were drafted out of high school by the Cubs. You yeah. decided to go to San Jose state, your second round pick uh, with the Mariners. Uh, tell me about your the your draft experience versus what you saw and how how the game is now oh yeah oh for sure it's exactly the way you just explained it you know and, and going to San Jose State I needed those three years of college you know coming out of high school I'd never been away from home and it, it's difficult as you know it minor league level is a it's a whole different animal and uh when you were immature, I was 17 when I graduated from high school. And I'm just so blessed and grateful that you know God's path for me was different because I think I would have gotten chewed up had I had gone into the minor league level at that point. I was not prepared for it. I needed those three years in college to kind of mature mentally, physically. And then I had you know, a couple of summer league, summer league teams that I played on. One is in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, where we had the late, great Tony Gwynn on there. Joe Carter was on there. Bobby Meacham, Spike Owen. We were star-studded. Joe Madden was the player coach on that team. Joe Madden caught me in that summer league team up in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, so uh, I needed that. So going into my junior year in college, uh, I started off 4-0, beat Stanford, beat Cal, we beat Fresno, beat some really good teams. So there, there was already talk that I was going to be one of the first 10 guys picked in the draft. Um, and then we went to Hawaii. I got sick over there. I lost some weight, lost a little velo. And by the time the draft came, I remember I had my agent and, uh, he said, you may go in the first round. You may go in the eighth round. We don't know because the C I ended up, I think six and seven with a four and a half ERA, my junior year in college. So it was like, Oh no. I have no idea what, how it's going to play out. The Mariners took a flyer on me in the second round, uh, and, and everything kind of came back quickly. I went to, you know, up in Bellingham, Washington, and, and did the short season deal up there, and it just started to click. But the way I, I got the phone call, the same thing as you talked about. Bob Harrison was the scout that scouted me with the Mariners. He's the one that called me and said, you know, you were drafted in the second round. You had no idea until that phone rang you know, whether you were drafted or not drafted, it wasn't on TV. Uh, it, and it was just, once I, you know, the second round, it was a unreal, you know, experience. It's like, wow, I now I'm ready for to uh, start my journey in, in professional baseball. So uh, it, it's totally different than what we see now. I like the way they do it now. I like, you know, the fact that they get, you get to see the emotions of these guys 
instantaneous because I was having those same emotions with my family. You know, when I got the phone call and you hang up, and then you're hugging your mom and dad and your brother and you're like, you're so pumped up that, okay, here we go. We're, the journey starts right now. So I, I like the way they do it now. I think you bring up a good point. I thought, I think you were 17, you were drafted. So you were a young yes. uh, high school senior which is even more of a big deal at the time. We don't think it's that big of a deal because we're right. 17, we're 18. We're the best in the world. Let me go. Right. Uh, but looking back, I think you're right. I, I don't think there's, there's that rare exception that is physically and mentally mature enough right. for professional baseball. And, and I don't think you can have one without the other. You know, I, I think it's right. a process. College gives you a little bit of a buffer, a little yes. kid gloves to grow up, be away yep. from mommy and daddy. Yes. Uh, I still had an aluminum bat in my hand. So it was a kind of a maturation process. By the time I was a junior, I was chomping at the bit, ready to go. And it's the yeah. best decision I ever made going to college. There are the rare exceptions, the Bryce yes. Harpers, the Jim sure. or, or the uh, the Chipper Jones, the Mike Trouts. Yep. that are ready to go out of yeah. high school and, and bless them for that because there's right. not too many of them, but they're, they're the exception, not the rules and dealing with young players uh, and parents of kids today, they don't understand. Yeah. Little Johnny's really great in your little town and whatever, but the pro game is a different animal. The, yes. You're playing with kids that, that have been playing pro since they're 16 years old and you go to Bellingham, which you mentioned, you might play against a 20-year-old Dominican kid that's been a pro yeah. for 16 years. This yeah. is a grown man. You're playing with yes. grown men now, and it's not for fun. You don't play a weekend college series. <laughs> You're playing every day, exactly. and if you don't get the job done, guess what? You get fired. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so it's, I, it, Yeah, it, it's definitely a difficult it, – it, it's, you know, it's every kid's dream. You always – every kid, you know, you and I both, you grew up in – around major league baseball and so you got to see it from the inside which is a it's really cool and the group of kids that you guys you grew up i saw Eduardo perez last night yeah. uh you know so uh, the group of kids that you guys had the with ken griffey jr i mean that's special man that you guys were able to deal with that uh but it, it's as a kid you i guarantee it you were out even all on the major league field you were going i want to be here one day we all did i mean every you can't get there Unless you think that as a kid, you know, I, I want to get to that place at some point. I just had my four-year-old grandson came to a game uh, Saturday night. He, he's not really been that interested in baseball. He came to the game and he told his mom after, I want to play baseball now. Uh, you know, I want to, how do I get here is what he said at four years old. So it was really cool to hear that, you know, and that's the experience of going there, feeling the crowd, watching these guys do their thing. That's all the excitement. You saw it firsthand. I saw it from afar, but going to games as a kid, I grew up in the Bay Area, so I saw Willie Mays, Willie McCovey. I saw Vida Blue and Reggie Jackson and all these guys, the A's and the Giants, you know, and uh, the impact that those guys had on, you know, me growing up in that Bay Area. Uh, it, it was special. So uh, it, it's every kid's little his dream is to, to be able to go out there and do it. And then all of a sudden you get that opportunity. And, and you, we mentioned the draft. And again, coming out of high school, there are the exceptions of kids that are ready. And I think more kids are ready now because of maybe the, the way that the travel ball teams are set up. They're playing high-level baseball, you know, already at that point and have, have traveled and have done some traveling and have maybe been away from mom and dad where they may have had to work and they head off on some tournaments. But uh, 
Uh, you know, Ken Griffey Jr. is a is a guy that had been around the game uh, and still had some struggles in the minor leagues because he was 17 years old too, I think, when he was yeah. uh, first drafted. And and it's difficult because it's not on the field. That's your sanctuaries when you get to go on the field. It's that other time. And there's a lot of the other time, the downtime of, yeah, I got to cook for myself. I got to clean some stuff up because nobody's here to clean it. Mom or, you know, mom's not here to, to clean it, all that stuff up. Uh, so it's, it's, that's, that's the difficult part is the outside of the game. Once you get on the field, that's the sanctuary, but it's the downtime. I think that a lot of times where the problems can happen. Yeah. And, uh, I, if man, you just bring me back to, to those minor league years, and uh, you mentioned the young players today, they are bringing them up at a younger age. And at first, I was looking at it going, Wow, you know, I, I know what it was like when I got to the big leagues, I'm 22 years old, and it was really hard. And I see these kids at 20, I'm like, I, I have to, you know, my sophomore year in college, I had to be in the big leagues, I would have no <laughs> chance. But I think you're right. It's the way they're brought up now. It's the culture. Right. Yeah. And when we got to the big leagues as rookies, I don't know about your experience. I know your rookie season. You led the league in punch outs. You won 17 games as a rookie. Uh, but I know when I first got to the big leagues, it wasn't roll out the red carpet for this hot shot prospect. It's like right. hot shot prospect. Keep your mouth shut. Sit in the front of the bus with the coaches. Yeah. Yeah. We'll let you know when we allow you to hang out with the real players. Speak when spoken to, yeah, and prove to us you belong here. And it took us, it took me a while before I proved it. It seems like today they kind of roll out the red carpet for the young player. Yeah. It's a little bit different. Us old kind of older school guys look at it like, wow, I had to really, you know, I had Chris Bazio and Jay Buner breathing down my neck <laughs> every day. And it seems like these guys are are having a party. Right. Now I think about it and I'm going, well the welcoming way is that better does it does it make him more comfortable and able to perform at an earlier earlier level i wouldn't change anything i had to learn my lessons i had to be humbled i had to get knocked sure. down and get back yes. up again so so there's arguments on both sides but yes i think the reason for the younger players is they're much more welcoming the veterans are much more welcoming and and all encompassing and hey Good to have you here. Whereas when we come up, some of those veterans wouldn't even look at you twice. Like, yeah. hey, you proved to me before you have a right to even speak to me. It was yeah. different. It was it was a tough love situation. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, in Seattle, we didn't have the real big veteran presence. Jim Beatty was on our team, and Jim Beatty was our veteran on our team. You know, and I came up, and you still are trying to find your way through. And I remember going up to Jim Beatty one time, and we called him Zelmo. And I go, hey, hey Zelmo. How would you pitch to this guy? And I remember <laughs> he turned and looked at me. And he goes, "Are you talking to me?" And I go, "Yeah, yeah. How how would you pitch to this guy?" And he goes, "Here's how it works. If I want to talk to you, I'll go down to the end of the bench and I'll have a conversation with you. Other than that, there's no reason for you to be sitting next to me. Go back to that little corner where you were sitting in and get back there." And I just went, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I couldn't get back there fast enough. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I got it. You tried to, you know. Feel your way through. And yes, I had a, a good rookie year, but you were still, you know, we're, and we didn't have the big veteran presence. But I, when I got to the Angels, you know, after being my, after six years of the big leagues and after getting, you know, someone established, I didn't come in and go, 
you know, I, I just wanted to hide when I signed with the Angels. They had veteran presence there. You know, I just did, wanted to show up and do my thing. I didn't want to, you know, do anything other than that. Um, and so once you, you get in a few years with the team, then you realize, you know, your role changes with that ball club. And I remember I was that guy when the, every young player that came up, boy, I was made sure that first and foremost, that you were appreciative of where you were. This is, this is a gift where you are. It's not like you were supposed to be here. There's a lot of really talented players, <coughs> excuse me, in this locker room. So I wanted them to respect and to understand the respect that goes on. Tenure meant something back then in those days to where, uh, I, and that's the part that you wanted to hammer. You respect these guys that have been through this for a long period of time. Sit back. Spike Owen had the greatest line. I, I remember sitting around one time after a game, and, and we would all sit around and listen to the, the Chili Dog, Chili Davis, sit there and read out the wisdom. You know, it'd be me and Chuck Finley, and then we did Spike Owen was there, and then Gary D. Sarcina was the young up and coming guy. And he always, Spike always told him, DSR, pull up a chair. But he goes, big ears, little mouth. We don't want to hear you. Listen to these conversations, absorb it. But we don't want to hear, we don't want your input. You know, we, we just, so, and then you would include them at some point. But Spike was really good at, at hammering that. And, you know, and I, I, I felt like I hammered a lot of the young guys. Uh, and I'm a lover. I am a lover. So it's like, it's difficult to kind of, kind of beat some guys down because you want yeah, yeah, to probably had to, you probably had to go into character. <laughs> you definitely had to. Yeah. And then I, you know, I hear some of these guys after they got a couple of years going, man, we down at the minor league level, we were scared to death to come up because we heard about you were going to, and I go, Oh my gosh, that's painful. You know, it's like, cause I, I do nothing but want to encourage and help everybody along the way. So, <clears throat> um, it's, it's different in every locker room. And I agree with you now. Now these guys, young guys come up and, you know, they said, hey, I should have been here yesterday. You know, what, what right. took you so long? You know, so I don't, that's not involved in the game anymore. And it's just the way the game evolves, whether we like it or not. You know, maybe I'm not the biggest fan of that. I see it a lot. There's a lot of things that I see in today's game that I go, I bite my tongue, you know, yeah. snap a pencil underneath the desk. You know, it's like uh, that I don't, you know, that would have drove me crazy if i was down in that locker room but it's just the way the kind of the game is played now so you you you've got to evolve with it because that's kind of where the game has evolved you may not like it as much but you understand that it's their game now it's not your game exactly and i and I, <coughs> I i thought about that it that's a great point it is their game it was our game but you know even this this last trip to seattle that's kind of my home turf you know and i'm down right. on the field for for the home run derby and that locker room, I walk in that locker room. I have so many memories. That was my locker room. That's me true. and Ed, me and Edgar ran that yes. locker room, and all of a sudden, but I step back now as as an right. ex and, and a veteran guy that I'm a little wiser, and I think, but I've got to be careful to respect these guys, these current players. This is their house. This is not my sure. house. No I'm a guest in your house, and I appreciate you having me there. Right. But uh, you know, and I think a lot of us do that nowadays. But yeah, each. Each, I always say this, each and every generation will be judged by history. Yep. It's yep. not for us to judge. It's to, to be fans and a, a change is different. None of it. A lot of us like change. Some sure. of it we like, some of it we don't, but, but life's going to go on and the game's going to go on without us. Sure. 
I was reminiscing, you know, getting ready for this this podcast with you, Mark, and and I'm looking over the names that you came up. I see Marty Martinez, who we we recently has passed away. He was my first infield coach, and I'll remember Marty to this day rolling barrels at my feet. You played for him. He was a manager for you for a minute. Tartable and Gorman Thomas and the late Dave Henderson. Yeah, uh, Harold Reynolds, who I replaced in Seattle. So. Man, your your time in Seattle, you had some big years. You had a nineteen year uh win season in, in nineteen eighty seven, your first all-star game. You won a couple gold gloves there. You led the league in punch outs three times. Um in eighty seven you punched out two hundred and forty five. In eighty eight, two hundred and sixty two. You had a lot of a lot of success in Seattle. The year your yeah. walk year when you got traded to Montreal. Yeah. Uh you were a Cy Young candidate that year. You went to Montreal. It didn't work out. You end up going to the Angels. Yeah. Uh, and then you had a long tenure in, in Anaheim. And yeah. you came in with the Brian Downings and the Dick Schofield. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, you you transferred on to the JT Snows, the Salmon, the Jimmy Edmonds, the yes. Garrett Andersons, who would eventually yes. in 02 win a World Series. And that's right. – uh, that was my time when I was with the Mariners that we, right. we were, we were opponents in that, that American league West, which was such a, a dominant uh, division really back then. Um, Anaheim days. Love it. What's your, what's your selling point back to showy. How are you going to sell it? You played a long time in Anaheim. A lot of, a lot of yes. success, gold, a lot of gold gloves, a lot of all-stars. What's your suggestion to showy? Why should he stay in Anaheim? Well, you know, one of the, the, the true selling points is Southern California. I mean, that alone sells itself of that you will not play in better weather anywhere in the United States. L.A., Angels, San Diego. Uh, th- there's no better place. You know there, there's no rainouts. It's going to be consistent. Uh, it may get into the 90s, you, you know, here and there. But for the most part, it's comfortable every night uh that that's you know the for, to me the first selling point if you're a free agent is always i want to win you know that that's the part i want to win Artie moreno I, I there's a lot of people that you know are ups are always upset with Artie. Artie spends money Artie wants to win more than anybody out there he wants to win a world championship uh he has spent money on the elite players uh, trying to put that whole package together. It doesn't work. I played for Mr. Autry, Gene Autry. He had the best of the best. Your dad played there, you know, and it's he tried to assemble the best players and, and try to do this kind of the same thing of put the best players on the field to win a world championship. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, and, and we know there's just so many little factors that kind of sometimes play into that, and it hasn't worked out, but – it, it's the best place to play. Uh, I remember when I played in Seattle, we'd come down and play against your dad and Reggie Jackson and uh, Bob, um, uh, Doug DeSensei, and obviously Rod Carew was there. And, and I'm, I'm a kid. I'm in awe looking at these are the stars. These are the stars I watched when I was a kid. Then I'm now I'm competing against them. There was always 40,000 people in that stadium at least every time you came down. The people here, you know, they 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 want to win, <clears throat> excuse me, but they also, um, you know, they appreciate the star players and they really like the star players. Uh, 
So for Shohei, again, it's the comfort zone. He's very comfortable here. The winning is the one thing that hasn't clicked for Shohei. Uh, but I, I think this is truly the best, uh, you know, one of the best places it, to put a uniform on and play the game of baseball. You're down in San Diego. That is another unreal place. I got a chance to play with San Diego, go to the World Series with San Diego in 98. So uh, I, I know how special that city is. That's, I was born in San Diego, so San Diego is always near and dear to my heart. It was fun to to get a chance to go play for the Padres. And then obviously the Dodgers right up the street. They're all part of that that great weather hub that is here in Southern California. You mentioned 98. You, you left Anaheim in 97. You got to go to a World Series with the Padres. You played right. on that great Cleveland. You, you, you retired after 1999 and uh, 179 wins, over 2,400 punch outs, uh, a 3.97 career ERA. Great career. Um, looking back now, you've been in the booth a, a while now. Right. You get to follow this game on a daily basis. Um, you know, obviously the pitch count is the big, the pitch clock is the huge thing now, but I'm starting to hear a lot of buzz that, that this, uh, this luck electronic umpire behind the plate. It's, it's got a chance to be a real deal. Now as the purest, uh, for a hitter, I love that umpire. I love that umpire behind the plate. I, in the good ones, Mark, I get into the box. They establish their strike zone early. I know if you're giving me a couple in, you're giving the pitcher a couple inches off the plate, I better be getting that one in off the plate, but the good ones would establish their, their strike zone early. And we, as hitters knew what the strikes and what the balls were And each, no human being is going to be perfect. Right. You know, it's, but establish your zone. Let me know what the zone is. I, as long as I know what the zone is and you pitch and know what the zone is, that's a fair strike zone. It's changed today with the technology, with that stupid white box that everybody's an, everybody's an expert. That's not even, you know, and it seems like the plate's this wide and it's really high. <laughs> yes, you know? exactly. I'm watching old games and we used to just eyeball balls and strikes. And I, sure. I'd be sitting there watching a game and say, that's a ball. It's a bad call. Right. Nowadays, it's like, oh, we got to, if it hit the, hit the box you're an expert i don't like it uh do you think it's going there has it grown on you at all because i think it's going there the way this the way this game's going now one thing is maybe you're gonna have a pretty darn consistent zone but i I don't like taking the umpire i like less change is better for me your thoughts on that on that uh on that possibility coming up Yes, the automated strike zone. And I didn't really know much about it. I know they're doing it at the minor league level, so I didn't know how it operates or how it works. I'm 100% with you. There was umpires that would give you that much off the outside part of the plate, and there was other guys that you couldn't get this much on the inside, you know, part of the plate that would have that real tight zone. Uh, and But you knew it. You knew it. And uh, you knew which guys. And I'm 100% with you. There's one thing has to happen it's either you eliminate that box on tv and i i talk about it on the radio it's not even precise by the way right that, that's kind of our thing we're looking at. and i go i would say it on the radio i go well if you believe in the box that's that that touched the box if you know so uh, i don't i it's coming it's gonna you're gonna have automated strikes so but this is how it's gonna work the umpire is gonna umpire like a normal scenario i mean he's still gonna call balls and strikes it's not going to go beep, beep. No, it's going to be the umpire will call the balls and strikes. You as a player, and I think you get three as a team, three challenges. 
during a game. This is kind of the way it's been presented to me to where if you're up there and you're going, there's no way that was a strike. You just touch your hat and it is immediate. And I'm talking instantaneously. It goes on the video board in the stadium and you get to see, and it's just like tennis, the way they have it to where you get to see when they review it, if there's the line, whether there's a mark on the line or there isn't a mark on the line, you get to look at the video board and it's instantaneous. It's not going to take a long time. So you step out, you do this. That's not a strike. Boom. It's up on the board and you will see that is either a strike or not a strike and off you're back playing baseball again. So when it was explained to me, I went, all right, I'm into that, you know, because you always look for, you've been rung up. I got tech. I got screwed in a world series game yes, against you did. the Yankees on a two, two pitch. That was a strike. Uh, so you always want, you want that. You want that to be consistent. What's a ball is a ball. What's a strike is a strike. Had a long conversation with Tim Salmon a couple of days ago, and he brought up a great point. He's, he says, as a hitter, and you would know this again better than me, you know what's a strike and what's not a strike. You know that. He said, the only thing that makes me chase stuff that's not a strike is that umpire that's behind home plate that all of a sudden, if that's a strikeout that far off the plate, now I have to expand what I know is a strike because of the umpire. So he says, he thinks that, with the automated strike zone, it's going to help hitters immensely because they know the strike zone. You guys know what strikes are. The only thing that gets you to chase a lot of times out of the strike zone is that guy that's behind you that maybe expands that zone normally that you wouldn't get. Now that forces you to maybe chase something that you know you wouldn't have chased, but you're not sure if he's going to call it or not. I don't know if I explained that well, but uh that's it made sense to me that uh, it, it definitely is coming the automated strike zone, uh, and the way it was pre- presented to me, I think that's a, a pretty cool. I think it would be a lot of fun to see. What I see, and I may I may be wrong here, uh, just being a, you know, at watching the game nowadays, yeah. and I'm not on the ground level, so I don't know. I'm not in that actual game, but it seems to me the the relationship between players and, and umpires has changed. I mean, yes. that was the oh. cat and mouse. That was a part yes. of the game. I was at second base and I'm, oh, yeah. I'm chatting with that second base umpire. Cause guess what? Two nights from now, he's going to be behind the plate oh, yeah. and they, and I want him to be my friend. So oh, if he yeah. did, you know, so I'm doing whatever I can, I'm politicking whatever I can. And this is kind of the running thing. Joe West, love oh, yeah. him or hate him. Uh, Joe West would be behind that plate. And my way of, of walking to the plate and saying hi is, hey, what's going on, fat ass? How we doing tonight? <laughs> now, that my, that was my way of saying, hey, Joe, hope you're having a good day. He knew that. He'd make he a did. short, short joke or something. That's how we interacted. That was our friendship. But right. that was a part of the relationship you had with sure. umpires. I don't see that so much these yeah. days. It seems more robotic. The yep. umpires are more, I'm here to do a job. And the players are, you know, they there's more fraternizing amongst players than there used to be in, in my day or your yep. generation. That's true. But I don't see the fraternization with the umpire the way it used to be. Umpires used to be, hey, Joe, how you doing? Hey, Booney, you got any advice for me tonight where I should go to dinner? We had that relationship. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see it as much in today's yeah. game. I, I, I'm with you. I watch games all the time. And as a pitcher, we didn't have the luxury of buttering them up like you did. And you making sure that zone got a little tighter. than. Oh, I took normal. full advantage. But we didn't have that <laughs> chance to go out there and, and put our arm around that umpire and have that conversation. I'm with you. I see these conversations, but 
if you think about it, you think about what is on these umpires' plates now. Oh. There's so much more now on their plate with pitch clocks. They're watching a, a clock to see, okay, uh, it, it's a pitch violation because he didn't throw it in time or he wasn't staring at the pitcher, didn't get in the box with eight seconds left. There is so much on these umpires' plates. that, uh, and, and, again, the box is a big part of that. I think the box crushes these umpires because they know that hitter – can go back immediately to the dugout right. and, and, and get a quick view. We didn't have, I didn't, that wasn't around when I played it. Probably, I know it was maybe backside it, your career. It wasn't, it wasn't me. I had to go off into the, okay. the media room, but we didn't have access like they do today. Exactly. So they could go back immediately on that iPad and watch that at bat and see where that pitch was and have that instant response back to that umpire. And that umpire is going to know, man, I probably boxed that up because they have the technology that's going to say one way or the other whether that was a strike or not. So difficult. It's so difficult to be an umpire to start with, to start with. You know that one half of the equation is always going to hate you and the other side of it is going to love you. So it's uh, it's a difficult gig to do. These guys are the best of the best, and they truly are. When you sit and watch this, you watch a play happen, and you visibly see it, and you kind of render your decision in your head, and then you have to go back and watch it in super slow-mo to find out whether that call, whether they got it right or not, and you're going, holy smokes, that guy drilled it. I thought the guy was safe, but he saw it, and he, he made the right call in that. It's impressive uh, what these guys do. And, you know, it's, uh, um, it's a difficult job. I, I think, is there the you know, the relationship that there used to be, I don't see that at all. And again, I don't know if it's a byproduct of, of too much on the umpire's plate to be able to have those conversations or visit the box to where that umpire can't relax and have his zone, whatever his zone is that night, that's his zone. The pitcher knows it. The hitters know it. They know that they're going to maybe not be happy with one way or the other, kind of the way it plays out. And that's where you, the buttering up, you could be out there going, hey, you know, that this guy the other night, it, it's, he throws a lot of pitches that look like strike. You know, heck, I had a catcher, Scott Bradley, when I was in Seattle with the Mariners, uh, he would tap the umpire every time we'd go on that inside part of the plate to let him know, don't you give up on this. This He can, he can establish that inside. He would tap him on the back of the leg every time that we came on the inside part to let him know. Get a really good look at this pitch because a lot of times umpires would give up on that uh, and to let them know this is where we're coming. We're coming in here. Take a good look. So those are little things, you know, it's, it's, it's relationship stuff that you can have. And maybe it's not there as much. Again, I'm with you. I'm not on the field. You, you don't really know how it's playing out. It doesn't look like it's there, but uh, maybe it is. Uh I'm not a huge, I don't like change. I don't, I'm always pessimistic about change. This pitch clock thing, I was pessimistic. I think it's been a home run. I look at it. I think it's done everything that, and more ex players, veteran players like yourself. I'm hearing the same thing like Booney. I didn't think it was going to be good. And it's been great. Uh, you know, I hated, and you being a, a guy that picked off a lot yeah, of sure. uh, a lot of runners. You know, you I remember it just in my playing days. There was Langston, there was Gary, or Gary, um, there was Pettit in in New York. The lefties that really hung in the air, and you couldn't just take off on them. You picked off. I think you're the fourth most ever 
in the history of the game pickoff wise. But I thought, you know, the elite base runners are really going to take advantage of the two disengagement rules right. and the pitch clock. And it wasn't going to be fair. But now looking at it, the the reason behind those rules was to encourage the running game, to yes. get people running again, to get yes. more excitement. That's what the fans want to see. I think they've really hit their goals on what they were trying to do. Now, maybe in the future, they'll, they'll, they'll reel back. There'll be a tweak here and there uh, as the elite runners start to steal a lot of bases to curb that. Right. Cause it really is not fair to you. And it's oh, not no. fair to that catcher. The, the two disengage. You imagine Ricky Henderson playing today <laughs> with the two. I mean, he'd be sitting over there laughing at you. Like when, yeah, when you want me to go, but I think it's good for the game. Um, your thoughts on that as a pitcher, yep. be, being a pickoff was a huge part of your repertoire. Yep. Uh, how would you do in today's game? I think guys like you would still have a little bit of an edge because me as a runner, I wasn't a base stealer. I'd steal one when you weren't paying attention to me. But I knew if I had Mark Langston on the mound, I'm definitely – I'd always go first move off a lefty for you. I'm usually staying put that at bat. Yes. Oh, there's no doubt. I, I think, you know, it's being a lefty – um, and only having two chances because a lot of times you don't want to show that a move right out of the gate. You want some setup moves to kind of lull the guy to sleep, thinking, okay, you can you make some obvious stuff, you know. And always, I, I, I spent I can't begin to tell you the hours I spent in front of a mirror trying to watch what my body's doing when I throw to first base, when I you know I start to go home. You try to you try to sync it up to make it look the same. Um, so it, it's and, and you, you want a couple of moves that are, are crummy, that look bad, that's an easy read for that guy to maybe get comfortable to take that maybe that half a step more off the base. And I had a quick step off move. That's what kind of was the neutralize, neutralizer for me was, you know, I saw you take maybe take that extra half a step. And then I, I had a real quick move that I would get guys that direction. Uh, that part, I'm not, I'm not as keen on with the two pickovers. Uh, that one I – Maybe not the biggest fan of uh, the the cl pitch clock. I'm into it. I love it. I think it's great for the game because nobody wants to watch a three and a half hour game. Nobody. Everybody in the games. We had a three hour game last night. Uh, maybe because obviously it was ESPN game to where the commercial times are longer than normal. But uh, usually these games are running that two thirty, two forty. Man, when I first came up to the big leagues, that's those were the game times. Umpires like, let's go hustle in and hustle out. There wasn't the big, you know, the, the times. And all of a sudden, you know, we got to baseball where every game was three hours and 20 minutes, three hours and 40 minutes. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody. So all it does is kind of eliminate the guy stepping out, redoing his batting gloves, maybe the pitcher walking around, you know, uh, taking his time, getting his breath. It kind of just gets going. The one problem that I have with it from a pitching standpoint is, I know as a pitcher, the game will start speeding up on you. All of a sudden, you know, there's a blue pit and then there's a walk. Next thing you know, oh, my gosh, there's there's a bunch of traffic to where – and then you, you can still do it. You can still call timeout and, and just walk behind the mound and kind of go take a breath and go, what is going on? I, you know, how do I get out of this jam? It, it seems like that speeds the pitchers. You know, that keeps them going at a pace to where they aren't – getting that opportunity to maybe take that breath and kind of reconfigure and, and do that. That's the, the small little thing that I've seen. Um, 
But other than that, man, I, I'm all in favor of of all the rules, even the bigger bases. I, you know, I kind of went, eh, what's what's the big deal? You, you and I both grew up in the game where the game was totally different how it was played to where a double play, your job was to get that guy that was going to turn that double play. You as a second baseman know what that guy's barreling in on you to, to kind of whichever way you're going, they're trying to anticipate which way you're going and try to track you and follow you to try to sweep your legs or try to disrupt that throw from you. That is so eliminated. Now, these guys, they can stand on the base and turn a double play. They don't have to worry about anybody crushing them or getting into them. That part I miss. I, I miss because I think that's was a cool part of the game uh, where there were, that's you're talking about athletic ability. You had to be athletic as a shortstop or a second baseman to, to keep from getting crushed. And I know they, they want to keep the star players on the field, and that's where the Buster Posey – rule at home plate crushing the catchers at home plate and now it's you know the goofy rules i'm not i see that a lot too where is the catcher in the right spot when he's retrieving the ball did his body shift did he give him a lane to home plate uh you know all of that stuff to where boy your dad i, I know your dad's got a zillion stories oh, of just it, dri- it drives it drives him crazy yeah, you know, you talked a lot, even the veteran catchers, that took a lot of abuse at home plate. I mean, a lot of abuse at home plate. And they're like, gosh, you know, it's because you, you know, that, that's that's one little part that maybe I'm not as big as bad as giving the guy a lane. And, and as you as a runner, would you ever come home head first to a catcher? You know, back in the day, there's no, no chance of it. That catcher with his gear on would try to, crush your shoulder or right. crush your arm you would have to go in with your feet just for protection of yourself everybody slides head first coming into home plate now and it's like man that is that's danger back in the day you would never do it because you know that guy with all that gear on is looking you know he knows he's going to get hit so he's got to try to protect himself so maybe it's good maybe it's bad I, i'm not a, a big fan of that one but uh and that rule has been in play for quite a while, but they're still trying to figure it out. By the way, I see it on a nightly basis, whether did he give him a lane, didn't give him a lane. You have to go back and watch again and watch the replay, but the pitch clock, I'm into it. Uh, the two pickoffs throws at first, maybe not so much. It's, but I get the, get what they're trying to do. They want offense. They want offense. People come to see you guys, you know, have, and that's what makes the game. Uh, and they're maybe trying to get, guys on the move because that creates excitement because there's athletic ability that's involved in trying to throw the guy out make the tags i i like it i i so far all the rules the new rules i'm into the pitch clock i know it's coming and after it was explained to me i think i'd be okay with that one too yeah the second the the, the double play yeah i mean i took as a second baseman that that's what i ha- hung my hat on that's how i separated myself from the no average question. second baseman can I turn that big double play with someone trying to knock me into left field? Nowadays, a relief pitcher can turn a double play, and it drives <laughs> me crazy as a second baseman. Yeah. I get your engagement thing. I was concerned a little bit, too, with you say the pitcher needs a breather once in a while. That was my job as a second baseman. If I see my teammate, Mark Langston, and I know he needs a breather right now, hey, time. We're going to come talking. We're not going to talk about anything. We're going to talk about after the game what we're doing. But I know you need to settle down right now. Sure. That was yeah. my job as an infielder. Can't do yeah. that anymore. I'm right. a little worried about that. But the one thing that I think they're going to have to tweak from the off from the pitch clock standpoint is you have to engage at the eight second mark. Yeah. 
Now there are pitchers out there that'll that'll play games with you, hold sure. the ball on you. Yeah. But always as an offensive player, I had the option. Oh, you're going to play this game? Timeout. Now I don't have that option, so right. you can hold the ball at me. I think they're going to have to bring that down to maybe a four or five second engagement rule, so you can't just hold the ball on me eight I seconds agree. every time. So yeah. I, you know, there's little tweaks. I mean, nothing's yeah, going to be perfect sure. from the outset, I but agree. but I think overall, I think a positive result has come from these changes. Last thing, I'll let you get out of here. I know I kept you longer than I told you. Uh, something that's near and dear to my heart because I came up as a prospect with the Mariners, and I had that label of, oh, he's an offensive second baseman. And I always used to get pissed and say, you know what, I, I'm a damn good second baseman. And I worked hard defensively. And I remember sure. when I started winning gold gloves, it was the as fulfilling as anything in my life because people always said offense, offense. And I thought, no, I can play defense. And I remember getting that first gold glove and thinking, this is awesome. You know, later in my career, as I got older, it gave me a, some solace. I mean, because you're not going to hit all the time. And I always had that glove to go out and, and kind of keep my mind off how bad I'm, I'm swinging the bat right now. And, right. and it was really a, a sanctuary for me. I took pride in it. I couldn't wait to go play defense and take a hit away from somebody. So at least I'm, I'm helping somewhat in this game. Right. You were a guy, there's not too many guys at the you know, pitching that have won gold gloves at a rate that you have. Obviously, Jim Cott just went in the Hall of Fame, had, I don't know, 52 gold gloves, whatever he had. <laughs> you know, Greg Maddox was an unbelievable yeah. Yeah. Uh, defensive pitcher. I know that's not the, the most important thing when it comes to taking the mound every fifth day, but you won seven of them. How much pride do you take in, in that gold glove? I know for me, I took a lot. How about for Mark Langston? Oh, it, it, uh, and again, when you get, you get that very first one, man, it is – it, it, it is. It's something I worked. I worked incredibly hard at, just, as you just talked about. It, I just didn't take it for granted. I worked. I looked for extra outs where I didn't have to throw a pitch. I looked for my second baseman or a shortstop. Made eye contact with them. I, I looked for little things like that. I took a lot of pride, and it, it's back in the day where they bunt it. They don't bunt anymore. We're looking at bunt numbers last night. I looked at 1985. The Dodgers were number one in baseball. They bunted 101. They had 101 sacrifices. The Angels were number two with Gene Mock. They yep. had 99. Gene Mock would always bunt. They oh, they bunted back in those days. Right now, the Arizona Diamondbacks lead the majors with 19 sacrifice bunts. Uh, and the Angels, I think I have they have two or three sacrifice bunts. They don't bunt anymore. Analytics can't stand it. They don't like giving up outs. And I, and I I've always said this. They've never been that guy that stood on the mound. When that guy's at first base, you have my attention. When you're at second base, you have a lot more of my attention. When you're at third base with less than two outs, you have my full attention now. I have to think about, can I bury the breaking ball? What out, all this stuff is going on in your head. So the bunt side of it is taken out of the game. So I had so much pride in the bunting, certainly first and second. I would always tell my third baseman, you stay there. I've got this side. I've got the – and I would say it loud enough so the hitter knew it. I've got this side. You just stay back. I'll get it, and we're going to get that out over there. I would say it loud enough to where that hitter heard it, and you could almost coerce hitters into bad bunts. And I would get these bad bunts and get be able to get aggressive outs. But I took pride. I, I love PFP. It's <laughs> spring training. I hate it. 
I hate well, it. I know you did. I know <laughs> the infielders hated it. And you, you guys had no business being over there going through this crap day after day. But I loved it as a pitcher because I knew this was these things are going to make me better. And I hated the fact that you do it every day for a half hour, 45 minutes every day. And that's it. You do it through spring training. And you rarely see teams do it again through the rest of the season. Uh, we, we see it now. Teams are more apt to, like the Angels are definitely doing it with Nev. Uh, they're doing it a little bit more. I've seen them, I think, once a homestand or maybe twice a homestand. They'll get the pitchers and they'll run through some PFP stuff. But uh, it, I, I, I loved fielding. I wanted to be a shortstop. I wanted to be a shortstop so bad. I took ground balls at short every day in the kingdom. <laughs> every day I would take ground balls at short. And uh, with the Angels, we had the late great Jimmy Reese, who was Babe Ruth's roommate. He was Abafongo. I got ground balls every day from this guy. And that's one thing that I think is missing because, and Marcel Latchman would do it afterwards also. You know, he would hit us ground balls, you know, after Jimmy Reese passed away. Latch would come out there and hit us fungos. But every day, Jimmy Reese, Babe Ruth's roommate, would come out, Ted for cigar, kid, here we go. And he'd start hitting you these ground balls. And you, you know, it weren't a couple of them wouldn't come in hard. So you'd drop your glove and you'd mess with them. And you'd feel them barehanded. He would get pissed. And that last one, he had the ability to put that little extra spin on it and go, whoop, whoop. And he'd get you. And you look back and he'd be high five and the guy catching him going, ah, you owe me a cigar, kid. So I, I took ground balls every day. I, I, as you mentioned, I worked hard at that craft. I wanted to be a really good fielding pitcher. I think my uh, played soccer as a kid, I played all through high school and two years in college. I played baseball and soccer in college. That helped my lower half. That synced up uh, my, my legs with my upper half. And so I had quick feet. And that's when you are, were going to win a gold glove, you better be quick on, off that mound to be able to get some things, help your fielders where they're playing back, you have responsibilities. And I, and again, I took pride in that. I, I took a lot of pride into either fielding balls or looking for that out where I don't have to throw a pitch to home plate. I looked for that. And that's part of being a gold glove is looking for those outs where they're there they're available. You just have to be paying attention to them. You have to have a good second baseman or a good shortstop that, you know, so you know their their mechanism to as soon as they start they just do this you're wheeling around and you're throwing because you know a hundred percent that that guy will be on the receiving end of that uh it, it's those are little things that little nuances that i took a lot of pride into making sure that when i took them out that i was going to control that aspect of it this is awesome it was an awesome time thanks thanks mark langston for coming on the program a lot of fun great to catch up uh, I'll see you in a couple of days. I'm going to come yell at you. I'm going to get there early. I got to make my rounds. Go see you. Oh, mentioned yeah. Phil Nevin. It's kind of like my other little brother. So when I go sure. up there to see Aaron, I pop over and I see Phil. Uh, all the best. Great career for all you out there listening. You can catch Mark each and every night. Uh, tune in to the LA Angels. Uh, and good luck second half. I think it's going to be tough in that division. I think you're yes. going to have at least three coming from the east, one in the central. Yeah. And two in the West. So the Angels got their work cut out for them. But yeah. so do the Mariners. And, yeah. and with Houston and Texas being better, uh, it's going to be an interesting run uh, towards the pennant. Thanks again, Mark Langston. And for all you out there at the Boom Podcast listening, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. 2400 Sports is an Odyssey company. 